So tonight, uh, we want to talk about setting annual goals, and uh, I'm sort of calling this a uh, Grace Christian Fellowship Sunday Bible study presented on Tuesday. <laughs> uh, so it's a sort of a, but we will put it on the podcast under Sunday Bible studies, and it's something I'm going to encourage everyone in the church to listen to. Um, because uh, setting goals is really a very big part of life. If you don't set goals, uh, you really will accomplish very little. And of course, because part of the Christian life is coming out of your own lordship under to Christ's lordship, setting goals is not something that can be done apart from Scripture and seeking God. And so you can't just uh, set the goals you want to set. You have to be seeking God for what goals he has. So uh, let's actually just start, therefore, with some scriptures that make it clear that setting goals is a biblical idea. So the first one is from Luke 13, 32. Jesus is speaking here. And Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox. Don't you like how pleasant Jesus always was with his enemies? Like, what pastor would do that today? Like, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. So the goal was to get to Jerusalem, but we see here that Jesus had a goal that he was working on for the next three days. And that goal was measurable, it was achievable. Uh, He could tell if he, you know, attained that goal by whether he was there or not. What what do you need, Byron? What do you point out? Okay, so Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, let's put that in some context. At the beginning of Philippians 3, if you've never studied that chapter, just done kind of a study of that chapter on its own, I would highly encourage you to do so. Because at the beginning, Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord. And he goes on to say, Beware of the false circumcision. The Greek word actually means mutilation. And uh, it, because he's uh, saying, what Paul is intimating, what he's making clear, is that those who practice circumcision in the flesh, obeying the, the, the Mosaic covenant, uh, and, and weren't necessarily truly circumcised in their heart if they had, weren't following Christ and if they were rejecting God's call and purpose. And he, say, he goes on to say, we are the true circumcision who put our trust or who glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. And what he means is we don't put any confidence in one iota that we have anything good within ourselves. Think about that. Like, isn't so much Christianity kind of performance-based and I, I, you know, we kind of, people try to outdo each other with testimonies and with how godly they are, or whatever. And none, like Paul says, we can't put any confidence in any of that stuff. Our entire trust, our entire glory in our salvation, in our righteousness, in the purpose of God for our life, in our relate, everything is in Christ. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we don't put any confidence in ourselves. And then he goes on to say, if you were going to use religious criteria in a performance base to uh, establish your status before God, he could probably do better than most. 
because he's from the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite of Israelite, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as to the law, blameless, and all this stuff. But he goes on to say, I count all of that as skubalon, which can be translated rubbish, but it probably should be translated like the King James translates it, dung, or like a more modern should be like crap or, or shit or some kind of street word for, for feces, uh, something that's not used in polite company. Because what he's saying is that's what performance-based righteousness is in the sight of God. It's something that, you know, have you ever stepped in dog do when you're mowing a lawn or something and then you realize that you can't even take your tennis shoes in the house? <laughs> You've got to take them off outside. And, and it's like, oh, it's gross. I stepped in the horse manure. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it's disgusting. Well, that's actually what Paul is trying to do. Sometimes when the English translations water things down, uh, they actually take some of the meaning out. Um, Paul's actually trying to say any attempt to stand in, how, in any kind of criteria that you might develop for why you're righteous, uh, you know, you go to church a lot, you give more than your 10%, or whatever you might say, you've helped more little ladies across the street, you tutor in the local schools, whatever you want to, whatever criteria you want to put to trust in your standing before God is godly or righteous, that is like vomit in Christ's sight. It's like disgusting. You know, um, it's like a restroom that you go to at a stadium that hasn't been cleaned in like 10 years. It's like, it's just sick, is what Paul is trying to say. So then he goes on to say, that he counts it all loss so that he might gain Christ. And then he talks about another thing that's very common, is he says, I also therefore put no confidence in my personal history. And in other words, sometimes we think, well, you know, a lot of people are tempted to slide a little morally here or there because they've been extra zealous or faithful. He says that's all nonsense. And he's, if you understand, Philippians is written just before Paul's executed. So this is one of the last letters he wrote out of the 13 that he wrote in the New Testament. And he's getting down to the very end, and he's saying, I'm just a beginner. I press on toward the upward call of Christ in Christ Jesus so that I could try to lay hold of or apprehend that for which he apprehended me. So Paul has is saying in Philippians, the whole chapter, I have some very passionate, definite goals. And those goals are to attain more of Christ today. So that's why I went in a little bit into the context. He's saying there's no final arrival spot in this life. You've never made it. You know, in school, you've made it when you get your bachelor's degree or your associate's degree or bachelor's or... Or you go on to get your, whatever, master's degree or PhD. There's, in all kinds of things in life, there's, you've had attained the goal. You know, like if you make the dinner, you know, eventually you serve the dinner, the dinner's done, you know. But in Christ, there's no destination except more of Christ. But, our, but his goal was clear. His, he's, he's not working toward nothing. And he's not working towards something abstract or nebulous. He's actually saying, I'm working towards something very concrete. 
the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that I might have more of Christ and less of me. So that's pretty cool. Now, you're talking to, about a guy who had planted churches, had written letters to churches, had a team of around 30 disciples, probably one of the most fruitful people in the history of the world. Uh, probably only you can think of a few Bible figures like a Moses or a Peter that you might compare to Paul's, what Paul had attained to. And he says, I count it as nothing. I'm just trying to reach the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to apprehend what he apprehended for me. That has to be the first thing we consider in all goal setting. Is our goal has to be Christ himself. First Timothy 1.5, Paul writing one of the pastoral letters it's called to his disciple Timothy, who he calls his true son in both First and Second Timothy, he tells Timothy when he's in Ephesus, putting together, taking care of the things that were needed to be put in order and so forth, he, he helps Timothy know what to work on because he says the goal or the aim or the outcome of our instruction is to have love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we've talked a little bit about some of those words. Conscience, for instance, is something that was very damaged by our, the fall of man. And part of walking with Christ is that God renews your conscience, in, which is in your spirit, part of your spirit, when you're born again, when, Christ, when you receive the Holy Spirit at the new birth. But you're constantly having your conscience renewed and trying to bring it back to how it was supposed to function. Because part of the fallen conscience is your fallen conscience always convicts you about things that God doesn't care about. And it doesn't convict you about things that God cares greatly about. And our conscience, which is, was supposed to be a, a barometer or a guide, a tool of helping us know when we're in bounds or out of bounds, is not functioning properly. So one of the goals of our instruction is to have our conscience become good. That's a goal, and that takes biblical studies so that we gradually know more and more how God really feels about things. Based on his attributes, his law, and his testimonies in Scripture, right? Uh, moving on, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. Sports people always like this verse. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in a few things. Wait, I'm sorry. It says all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim or, or without goals. I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, not hitting nothing. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And that phrase, I myself will not be disqualified, in the Greek means, um, literally, I wouldn't become a cracked vessel. Because the scriptural, uh, one of the major themes of scripture, or a word, major word picture that, that appears throughout scripture, is that in the ancient world, when they do um, archaeology, oh, 
that when they excavate various sites like Jericho or uh, um, Troy, where the Iliad and the Odyssey happened or whatever, they're looking for ceramic pottery. That tells them a lot about a culture because every culture had ceramic pottery and it was always highly decorated and it always had symbols or writing on it. And it tells you a lot about the culture. But one of the things that the, the Bible makes clear is God is the potter and we're the clay. And therefore, he's the one making the vessel. And Paul uses that, that imagery when he talks to Timothy and says that if a man cleanses himself from certain things, he'll be an a, uh, honorable vessel, useful to the master. So what does that mean? In every household, there were honorable pots and there were dishonorable and the honorable ones are like, and we have that in our day. You might have like the good china that you only bring out when the special guests come or whatever. And you might have like the plastic stuff that you have when the kids are there. <laughs> you know, when there's a bunch of kids that might break all the dishes there or whatever. And, uh, you know, you have more honorable and less honorable pottery and dishes, right? And one of the things is there was actually a repair process for pots and uh, in four vessels. And if a vessel got repaired, then it would often be used as like the spittoon or the vessel that they put water in to wash people's feet at the door or even the, the chamber pot at night. Some of you are probably old enough to know what that means. <laughs> or hopefully most of you know what that means. I uh, don't want to explain any more than that. Uh, but it was the dishonorable pot then. It may have used to be the great honorable pot, but it, somebody dropped it. You know, Josiah was doing the dishes, and he was screwing around with his brother Jonathan, and when he, he was drying, he tossed hey, the dish, and Jonathan didn't catch it. Now, we, it might be a matter of debate whether it was a bad toss or a bad catch, but uh, we don't need to get involved in that. But, but the pot breaks, and then you, you, know, you might fix it and put it back together, but it's never going to be the vessel for honor again. It's not the special one you bring out when the guests come over that your mom saves for, oh, we only can bring this one out when Uncle Fred and Aunt Sally come over, you know, or, you know, somebody really important to us. And so that's what Paul's actually talking about, that his aim is that his body wouldn't control him. He's going to buffet his body. My friend and I used to uh, mis mistranslate that as I buffet my body. <laughs> when we were teenagers, like, I go... <laughs> See, Paul told us it's okay to go to the pizza buffet. Um, I buffet my body, but uh, no, that's not what it means. Uh, I buffet my body, like I bring it into check, so that my vessel won't be disqualified and become a dishonorable vessel in the house of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? So that's a goal. Isn't that a goal? Like, my... What's your goal today, brother? My goal is not to become the chamber pot in the house of the Lord. <laughs> you know, I, I want to be one of the more honorable vessels they use for the, you know, Sunday dinners or something. All right. First Thessalonians four nine through twelve. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. He's talking about how God had taught them to love one another, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now, um, I have there in bold print conferred James 3, 13 through 18. 
If you remember, John just did a series a few months back on the book of James, and uh, he highlighted those verses in one of the messages. And he talked a little bit about uh, the idea of selfish ambition. And uh, selfish ambition really is kind of the curse of mankind. But what this 2 Corinthians 5 brings out, just like there is selfish ambition, as James addresses in James 3, there's also godly ambition. So part of what's actually being converted as you are converted to Christ and as you begin to be sanctified, that is set apart to God and matured, is your ambition should be changing. And your ambition should become to please him. He's actually saying in uh, the next verse on the page, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether we're at home, that is still in this life, in the context he's talking about, or absent, that means we've gone home to be the, with the Lord, it's going to be our ambition to be pleasing to God. And one of the ways you can actually search your heart in terms of where you're at with the gospel and Christ is to say, have I really gone through a change in motivations in life? Is it really an increasing uh, passion, desire, something that absorbs my thing? Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Is it my ambition to please God? Of course, you've all heard this story of mine, but uh, when I was just starting with, with the Lord and I had just quit drugs for... I don't know, a, a month or two. One night I was reading my Bible and uh, late into the evening, you know, with the lamp on next to my bed and reading the Bible. And, you know, eventually I decided to go to sleep. So I turned off the lights, set the Bible on the stand, slid down under the covers, and I found myself saying, Lord, I just want to please you. I just want to do what's right. And I actually sat back up and turned the light back on because I was so surprised that that came out of my heart because it had never been part of my agenda before to please God or do what was right. And I realized, oh my gosh, God has done a work in my life that I could never have done. I was trying to avoid becoming a Christian for quite a few years up to then. <laughs> and uh, and uh, in the end, he was successful and I wasn't, because God foreknows and predestines all things. And uh, I was wanting to not be one of the elect <laughs> or, and, or become a Christian. Uh, I was really wanting to uh, avoid the righteousness in all, at all costs. And um, the truth of the matter is, if you have it in your heart to be pleasing to the Lord as your goal, that's something only God can put in there. So as we study tonight about goals, one of the things you need to understand is we're not talking about what a bunch of worldly, natural-minded, humanist people would talk about when they were talking about goal setting. Now, you might read books by business gurus or disciplined life gurus or whatever that are secular, and they might have some good principles in there. If you're organizing your business or managing your time or something like that. But they're not going to have them for the right reasons. Lots of people who are very goal-oriented and very tenaciously focused in on and centered in and dedicated to their goals have all kinds of goals that are not to please the Lord. Sometimes it's to win championships. 
Sometimes it's to become famous, to sell more platinum albums than anyone else, or, or all sorts of ungodly worldly ambitions. It doesn't necessarily uh, follow that someone who's very dedicated to their goals is necessarily doing something that pleases the Lord. So that's important to say as, at the beginning here, that as we're just going through some introductory scriptures and getting our mind oriented to what the Bible says about goals. Uh, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to, the, to him, that is to Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now that touches on the, one of the foundational things listed in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. There are six things listed, and the last thing listed is, is eternal judgment. And in Proverbs, it starts with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That touches on the fear of the Lord. Lots of people have lots of goals that the fear of the Lord has not been factored in. And it's certainly not an all-consuming passion. We've all had goals that weren't necessarily what God wanted for us, haven't we? School, family, home, lots of things. So Colossians 3, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set. Set means to set, put your attention to, focus on, make it your goal. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You know, some people have sort of a regular habit in life where they're always leading one, two, three, four people at a time to Christ. And it's just an ongoing way of life. You don't get that habit in life if your mind isn't set on the things above, the eternal things. Because you're never going to make any money at that. <laughs> nor are you going to get famous. <laughs> nor are you going to be stop being inconvenienced or, or not exhaust yourself. But what you are going to do is be putting treasures in the next life. Remember how Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 34 talks about treasure. And he talks about where your treasure lies, there your heart will be. And you can't serve two masters. That's why we know that God's against polygamy, because you can't serve two masters. That's an old joke. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, you can't serve God in in some other ambition. He he didn't have to say just mammon there. He could have said championships. He could have said fame. Lots of people worship at the altar of trying to be famous. Get more attention for our rock band or whatever. Right? Some people want to climb the corporate ladder. Now, if God wants you to climb the corporate ladder, there are ways you could do that as long as your heart is fully Christ in the matter. And you could care less whether you're climbing the corporate ladder or not. You care about what God's called you to do. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that an amazing way to live life? Um, 
Let's look at a few other verses here real quick. Philippians 4, 7 through 9 is in here somewhere. So in verse 4, Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing or patient spirit be known to all men. Don't you, don't you look, appreciate people who are forbearing versus people who are kind of like, come on, let's get this going. What, what, what's this? Let your forbearing spirit be known, made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be worried about or be anxious. Anxious means to be divided between two masters. That's actually what the word means. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, 19 through 34, when he says, don't be anxious of, over your life, whether you have this or that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, because thanksgiving is a posture of gratitude and, thank, and faith, and it's the opposite. It's contentment, not... Uh, what's the, a word for always wanting, always craving yearning for something, craving, uh, where you're, you know, you're never content, you're un discontent. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guard is a goal word. Guard this, will you? <laughs> Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is a good repute, if there's any excellence of anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That's good, isn't it? Let's go to uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It's in here somewhere. Okay, here we go. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Compare this to the 1 Corinthians 9 scripture, which we read about uh, not boxing the air and running in such a way that you don't run with aim. It's very similar scriptures, actually. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We all have those. And let us run with endurance, steadfastness. Don't get off the track. Don't, don't run out of uh, zeal quickly. You know, let us run with endurance, the race that's set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Big issue in goal setting is, meant, you know, uh, I've actually heard, been at uh, th those kind of exercise workout places that you can buy a membership and uh, it's always amazing how many more people they have in January. Because everyone sets these New Year's resolutions that I'm going to exercise and work out. And usually they start to fade by late January to mid-February. And I've actually heard the employees at these places talking about that phenomenon. Because most people can't set a goal that they can stick with. I've, one of the things that my wife and I grieve over, lots of people we started this Christian race with in the early 70s are not that zealous about the Lord anymore. It's one thing to start your Christian life pretty hungry for the Word and God and zealous. That's why Jesus actually tells uh, the Ephesian church 
to repent and return to your first love. And how do you measure that? He tells them in the next sentence. He says, do the deeds you did at first. I always ask myself, am I living as zealous for the Lord as I once did? Am I taking time off? And, you know, often the answer is no, actually. No, I'm not. I need to repent and return to my first love. Frankly, that's been a theme in my life. Uh, I think, realistically, you battle for that. You know, anyone who's courted and got married and so forth knows there's the, you know, certain parts of that is, is, is very exciting and so forth. But can you maintain the same love and commitment and all that and make it new and fresh again when you've been married for 67 years? <laughs> or is it just same old, same old? And you have to be intentional about stuff like that. You have to have goals in that. All right, uh, 2 Timothy 1, 12 through 14, Paul says, retain, that's his goal word, the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me in the faith, in love, which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure who is, that has been entrusted to you. Do you know if you're in Christ, God, you're in Christ because of faith, and you have faith because God revealed certain things to you. And you came to know and understand that they were true. And your entire rest of your life is a guarding of that revelation. Hebrews 2 talks about we must pay much closer attention to the things we've heard lest we drift from them. Do you know no one ever wakes up and says, I think I'm going to fall away from Christ today. They drift there over time. He's, so Hebrews 2 says we must pay much closer attention to the things we've seen and heard lest we drift from them. Are you more zealous now than you were a month or a year ago? If not, you need to repent and return to our first love. That has to become a goal. That has to be the goal of goals in your goal setting. It used to all be very exciting and new. But now it's just going through the motions. That's possible to do toward anything. Now you might notice that there's other scriptures listed in uh, without the, you know, I only have so much room. So I, I did include other scriptures that would I think would be worth your time to look up. So for instance, uh, when we started with, uh, I press on toward the goal for the price of the upper call of God and Christ Jesus, I put confer 1 John 3, 2 and 3, which says that we know that when we see Jesus, we'll become like him. And anyone who actually has that hope, you can tell whether you have real hope or false hope, anyone who has that hope purifies himself as he is pure. If you really actually have something happening where you believe you're going to be like Christ and understand Christ and know Christ and walk with Christ forever, there will be a desire to get there now. Why wait? I always think it's funny that the gospel of going to heaven that's, that we've degenerated into in the late 1800s because heaven is not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to be reconciled to God in such a way that you love him, you 
adore him, you're serving him, you're consumed by him, he's the all in all of your life. And when you die, you'll happen to change where you're doing that. So to make heaven the goal is a reduced gospel. Because Jesus is the goal. And in fact, heaven is described in the book of Revelation is they, need, they don't need any sun there. They don't need any lamps because the Lamb of God is the light all the time. Everything in heaven is about worshiping Jesus. And I find it funny that people who are avoiding, you know, the realities of heaven all their life think that I want to go to heaven when I die. You won't like it. If you're not consumed with loving to worship him now, loving to study his word, loving to serve his people, how, what makes you think you're going to like heaven? I'm always a little worried. I know, I know people who are say, well, I know the gospel and Jesus Christ are real, but someday I'll come back to him. If you don't want him now, what makes you think you're going to really be granted repentance to, to want him someday? That's a most dangerous posture of life. I wouldn't recommend living there for anyone. All right, so we start, we've so far covered that goal setting is biblical. There's lots of words like goals, aim, purpose, ambition, and so forth. And all those things can be godly or ungodly. They can be Christ-centered or they can become selfish-centered. They can be the things the world wants, the flesh wants, or the devil and demons want for you. Uh, in goals, it takes goal-setting to achieve these things, to, to have more of Christ. So let's uh, go on to Roman numeral 2, breaking it down. Like, What areas of our life should we set goals in? Firstly, the, you know, I've got it in ABC or something, fashion or something like that. Let's see if I can remember. Yeah, there's A, B, and C. Or no, A and B. And B has subpoints. <laughs> um, but A is our relationship to God, keeping Christ first. And we've already talked about Philippians 3, what Paul is saying that his goal is Christ himself. Remember when he was talking in Philippians 1? Uh, he's in jail. It's during Nero's persecutions, and he doesn't know if he's going to get out or not. And he's just reasoning, and he's saying, you know, I think that I'm going to be released because if I am, it'll mean greater service and fruitfulness. So his guess is that he's going to get free, but he says, if I don't, all the better because to live is Christ and to die is gain because I'll be in the immediate presence of God. Remember, that's all in Philippians 1. And he's writing this from jail with an emperor who's killing Christians. And he doesn't know if he's going to, because of his Roman citizenship and some of his contacts and so forth, if he's going to be free again. And we actually don't know from church history if he was free again because some people think he went to Spain and, and then was killed later. But um, in another case, he, he, he basically makes a statement about a posture toward life. To live is Christ. 
and to die is even better. That's it, gain. So believe me, we, you can have goals in your relationships. In fact, I would encourage you not to have relationships that you don't have goals in. If you live in a single brother's or single sister's house, have goals for the household. If you live in a family, have goals for the family. If you're married, have goals for the marriage. Now, I want to start with saying, have, make, start with goals in terms of your relationship to God. That's the first place to start every year in goal setting. So I'm breaking that down into what we call in this church the three delivery systems of grace. One of the greatest tragedies in church history is if you study various movements starting with the very first century all the way through church history, some Christians try to be about the scripture and the spirit without the body of Christ or without the church. Some try to be with the church without personal spiritual disciplines. Some try to be with about one delivery system of grace without the other two. And you can actually evaluate movements over time and even in our own day based on that. Today we have a situation where most Protestants that would call themselves Reformed or Presbyterian or uh, Anglicans, the old-fashioned Anglicans anyway, the Reformed Anglicans or something like that, they tend to be very much about biblical studies, church history, historical theology, and so forth. They would want very little to do with the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Lots of Christians want a lot to do with the person and power of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and so forth that don't want to ground that in very serious approaches to biblical studies. We all know people like that. And it makes you a little flaky. It, it's a recipe for lots of things going wrong from marriages to vocations to finances. To, lots of things go wrong if you don't take God's word seriously enough. I was getting warm even in my short sleeve shirt. Um, so, in terms of scripture study, uh, later in this message, I'm, I've got a couple places listed where you can use, but consider using some kind of a Bible in a year program. There's tons of it. Later in this, uh, I have one that John Weiss likes and one that Andy Gerhardt likes and one that I like. I, I think you should actually even vary which kind of program you use, but you should have some kind of program for scripture study and some kind of goals that are measurable. And we'll talk about what goals are in the next section. But the reason you have to have scripture study goals, John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures. Now, remember, when he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees at this point, the New Testament, not a word of it had been written yet. So he could only be referring to the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think in the word of God you have eternal life. And the scriptures bear witness of me. So what he's saying is, if you want to know me, it's in the 39 books of the Old Testament that you'll find me. Paul confirms that in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 when he talks about how when people read the Old Testament scriptures, 
It's all about Jesus. And a veil lies over their hearts and over their eyes so that they can't see the light of Christ in the Old Testament scriptures because the veil is removed when you turn to Christ and when you begin to look, know how to look for Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. Right? Jesus in the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, uh, 27, says... Um, should be listed there somewhere. Yeah, it's, uh, it's on, uh, at the end of that verse. Revelation 19, 13, by the way, Jesus is called the Word of God. That's one of his titles or names in the book of Revelation. Luke 24, 27, he tells them that everything that's written in the law and the prophets is concerns him. And it says that he, as he's talking to the guys in the road to Emmaus, he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures that is, he began to open up their eyes to see Jesus in the scriptures. You know, we read about Paul spending 14 years in the book of Galatians. He talks about how he spent 14 years before Barnabas went and got him and brought him to Antioch. What was he doing? He was rethinking the entire Old Testament in light of Christ. That's what he did for those 14 years. That's why his insights into the Old Testament and Christ are the greatest that you can find in the scriptures. Among the greatest, anyway. So, um, you know, make sure that scripture study, it is not, like some people actually think it's more spiritual to sort of be like a spiritual ping pong ball and, or a, what do you call that game where you hit the ball and it, and it goes, hits the pinball. So, you know, some people think it's like more, like, well, I don't have any goals. So just whatever the Lord shows me to each day. I'm like, what? If you ever notice, most people like that are pretty flaky, and they're all—they're like ricochet rabbit. They're all over the place. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> like you can't—you you can't pin them down in on anything. And uh, have some goals about scripture study and other kinds of studies, especially studies of books that will help you understand on a paradigm level what the scriptures really teaching and what it is you've missed about the scriptures. Because God has always gifted teachers in the body of Christ to do that. I don't just read and recommend any Christian books. I read the ones that will be a real game changer for those who study Scripture in terms of getting the right lenses to look at the Scripture through. That's important. That's why we have a recommended foundational list, an intermediate list, and we're actually working on several other lists of books for you because we want to keep you busy with books the rest of your life. All right. It's my gift to you. Uh, thank you, thank you, Lord, for sending uh, John Weiss and Andy Gerhardt to help us with that. All right, second goal is the Holy Spirit. You know, like, people, well, can you have a goal about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, can you have a goal about your marriage? Can you have a goal about your roommates? You can have goals in any relationship. So one of the goals in, in the Holy Spirit is clearly from Scripture to be filled with and to be refilled with the Holy Spirit because the Scripture tells us to do that. To build a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus makes it very clear in his final Last Supper address if you know, hopefully everyone knows this by now, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels because they see Jesus from a similar perspective, optic has to do with viewing, S-Y-M or S-Y-M in front of 
symphony or synchronize your watch has to do with with at the same time as. So they look at Jesus from a similar perspective. John, having read the other three Gospels when he wrote his, purposely went after a different perspective on Christ. And therefore, of the five miracles that he relates, uh, at least three of them, I have to go through and think, three or four of them aren't in the other Gospels. And then Jesus has five discourses, especially one of the discourses that's most important is his Last Supper discourse in the Gospel of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he focuses on giving us the communion meal, the, the, the sign and symbol of covenant renewal. All, all, you know, remember the eight aspects of all covenants. All covenants have ceremonies of enactment and ceremonies of renewal, right? And you reread the covenant in the ceremony of renewal and so forth. Um, and there's symbols and signs of every covenant and all that. But so uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke concentrate on Jesus giving us the Lord's Supper, communion meal, Eucharist, uh, on that Peter's going to deny him three times and be restored, and that Judas is going to betray him. John covers none of that at all, because that's already covered. What he covers is all the other things that Jesus said at the Last Supper, and the address starts with his washing their feet and teaching them about servant leadership. And then he tells them he's going to go to the Father, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to continue to do everything that he's always done by sending the Holy Spirit. And that's why John 14, 15, and 16, the Last Supper is John 13 through 16, four chapters. He tells them more about the Holy Spirit there than he has at any other time. Because greater works than he does are they going to do because he's going to the Father and it's actually goes so far as to say that it's your advantage that I go away. Now, if you guys were, how many Christians have ever wished that you were like lived at the time of the disciples and got to travel with Jesus and stuff? I hope you wish that like everybody, hopefully you go right that. And lots of people think, pray and say, Lord, it would be our advantage to our advantage if Brother Greg goes away. But, <laughs> but, but most people don't think like it's to our advantage if Jesus goes away. But Jesus is actually saying it's going to be to your advantage that I go away. I mean, you could believe if I said it, right? I mean, it's like, that's a no-brainer. We got, uh, of course, we've been praying for that for years. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but if Jesus, Jesus is telling them, I'm not going to hang out with you guys anymore. In, in my physical humanity and body. I'm going to back with the Father, where I came from. And that's to your benefit. How many think it would be hard for them to understand why it was to their benefit? But he says it's to your benefit because I'm going to send the paracletos, the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to be with you. And he's going to bring into your remembrance everything I taught you. And he's going to lead you and guide you into all the truth. And he's going to bear witness of me and so forth, right? And so, but now he's not going to be limited to doing that through one uh, incarnate son of God, physical human being, God and man and one person. He's now going to do this through bodies of Christ in every city, country, nook and cranny throughout the whole world. And Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is going to be present when we worship and with Christians in South Korea worship and Christians in Singapore and Christians in Hyderabad and Christians in Nairobi, Kenya and Christians in Detroit, if you can believe that. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, you know, 
And it, that's actually better. Actually, you're living in a more exciting time to be a disciple of Christ. You got a better deal than Peter and John and James had. Even if you can't get Brother Greg to go away. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's the reality of it. So, you can have goals about the Holy Spirit. Be filled with Him. Be refilled. Learn to know Him. Learn to be sensitive to Him. Remember the whole story with Elijah and the still small voice. There's a purpose for that. Like, God doesn't always speak in earthquake-type tones. I have had, like, a powerful word from God that was, like, so powerful you couldn't possibly miss it less than a handful of times in my 43 years. But I've had small impressions from the Holy Spirit that were clearly the voice of God thousands of times. And so have you. Ephesians 4.30 says to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Have you ever grieved anybody? Has anybody ever grieved you? Any parent has known that you have times when you're so proud of your kids and it's times when they break your heart. Kids have the same experience as our parents, I believe, sometimes. We've had that. You know, every person who grows up usually courts uh, a few people, especially if you do it in junior high or high school, that works out terrible, right? (laughs) And there's a lot of hurt and pain and grief. (laughs) We all know to some degree what grief is. We've all lost people who are close to us, even if we're so young that we've only lost a few grandparents. As you get older, you lose more and more people. When you get to be my age, do you have a good friend die like every month or two? It's just part of being old. I love Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, which simply means that's pouring out everything into the ground for nothing. That's like, you know, if I... You brought me a case of valuable liquid and I just poured it all out on the ground. That would be dissipation. Like, I just wasted it. To be drunk with wine is to just be, is a waste. But be being filled over and over again with the Holy Spirit is what Paul's actually saying. How often is it your goal to get filled with the Holy Spirit? I would suggest that it should be a daily goal. And that you should have practical ways that you know how the reason, uh, frankly, speaking in tongues is so valuable. The reason private Bible study is so important. The reason private thanksgiving and praise and learning to do it out loud is so important. And the reason corporate worship is so important, and I try to be in corporate worship meetings several times a week, is because that's part of how I get be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because I leak. So I need to encounter his peace and his power and his joy and his bearing witness of Christ in my heart and his changing my attitudes and my motivations. I need to encounter that through the gospel every day and through various things like speaking in tongues. Is it your, do you really have encounters? You know, get, get past the, the modern idea of quiet times. That makes me sick, to be honest. And daily devotions. I always say devotionettes make raisinets. And raisins are quite dry fruit. 
<laughs> you know, have an encounter with Christ by the Holy Spirit every day. Whether that takes an hour, two hours, what, but find ways to come into the presence of God and be being filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. You know, we used to sing a song, uh, and I used to actually be able to sing it in Portuguese as well. Yolo, sigo amandolo, sigo amandolo. But uh, it, I keep falling in love with him over and over again, over and over and over again. He gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. I keep falling in love with him over and over again. It's a very simple song, but it was kind of a, it's a great song. You know, it's like, did you fall in love with Jesus again today? And did it become like something that changed your attitudes and your motivations and why you're doing what you do? And did it change what you're doing? <laughs> Often it should cha that should change your priorities regularly. And that should cause you to reevaluate your goals in the light of Christ regularly. That's what we're talking about in this teaching tonight. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. You know how much of the church today despises prophetic utterances? A lot. But ex examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, not that which is wacky. And abstain from every evil. You know, some people use the excuse that there's a lot of wacky charismatics out there who say a lot of wacky things to, to despise all of God's gifts. That doesn't follow. You know, one of the things that you deal with in marriage counseling is you often, people who have a lot of troubles in their marriage usually let their emotions fall or rise on the behavior of the other person and on their hopes and expectations. And they're usually control freaks and they're what's called codependent. Your spiritual health is not dependent on how your spouse is doing. In a single brother's household, your spiritual health should not be dependent on how the other guys are doing. That's, re that's really important. And it doesn't make it any less truth that spiritual gifts are from God, that some people are misusing and abusing them. The answer is not throwing them out. The answer is doing them more wisely with more sanctification and, and, and more the way God wants. Now that, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 12, in 1 Corinthians 14, five times Paul tells us to pursue spiritual gifts. Yet most Christians today are denying them. And often many people who've been born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, seldom move in other spiritual gifts. That's not normal. That's sub-biblical and sub-normal. It should be your goal to have more words of wisdom, more words of knowledge, more affecting of miracles, more prophecies, more of these things happening in your life. Because, and you should seek, as Paul said, when you seek spiritual gifts, you should seek for a certain motivation. Remember how we talked about various motivations and goals. Paul says to seek to abound for the edification of the church. The reason you should seek to be used in prophetic utterances more isn't so you can be in the limelight and everyone can go, wow, he, you know, prophesy is so cool. I, I used to know a guy who was very anointed and godly, mature guy, a guy who 
helped my wife and I a lot over the years. But he used to sort of prophesy in King James English. <laughs> and he would go like, yay, the Lord says thou. <laughs> and so I would actually go up to him after church and go, yay. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I said, you know, like this, the Holy Spirit speaking King James English. Well, hopefully you study these things out and you'll see that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. God gives you impressions, but you actually have to ask God how he wants it said what inflection, what tones, what words, and some of your personality is going to come through with that, as it did all through the Bible. And I'm not talking that prof today's prophecy is not on the level of Scripture, but God still speaks things that are scriptural. The canon, the Scripture has been closed since the last apostle died, which is probably around 67 A.D., but God is still speaking all the time through the Holy Spirit. Don't quench him. Don't despise his prophetic utterances. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul says, Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. Now, some of the translations say ignorant or uninformed. The Greek word there actually would mean ignorant, but it means without knowledge. I don't want you to be without knowledge about spiritual gifts. Lots of Christians are without knowledge of spiritual gifts. Paul is telling you not to do that. So you should have goals to study spiritual gifts. There's good books you can get to learn how to move in more spiritual gifts. And I would recommend you, you know, I, we can help you with that material. We have some of those on our list. and um, You can actually go on uh, csmpublishing.org, Charles Simpson's ministry, and, and the old New Wine magazines. Uh, are there, which was done at the height of the charismatic movement, and they have lots, there's a whole issue on prophecy, and, and you can read all the articles in that. Um, you should seek to be used of God in spiritual gifts more frequently, more often. We couldn't pray for people to get baptized in the Spirit. We couldn't lead people to Christ as we do. We couldn't uh, do deliverance, cast out demons, or any of that without spiritual gifts. We can't. Because that's all the work of the Holy Spirit, continuing the ministry and the work of Christ. It's actually the ministry of Jesus ongoing. Verse uh, 31 of 1 Corinthians 12, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And he's talking in the previous verses, verses 28 through 30, about three major categories of gifts, as he also talks about in verses 4 through 6. Gifts of the Holy Spirit, the ministry or service leadership gifts of Christ, and the gifts of temperament and motivation. He talks about all three of those kinds of gifts in that chapter. And he's just saying that you're supposed to earnestly desire the greater ones. Do you know that most people go through a lot of condemnation and doubt about like wanting to do more for the Lord? But you know what? You will always have a certain amount of selfish ambition that you need to lay before the Lord for him to take it out but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be desiring to be used of God in great and mighty ways. You just have to keep laying that on the altar and take, say, God, break and, and, and refine and fire, take your fire and burn out the selfish ambitions parts of that. May it be that I want to glorify your name and see you exalted in every way. And God will be faithful to answer that prayer by taking you through brokenness and Humility therapy, and you can 
join me and I have a PhD in the school of failure. Uh, <laughs> you can take the advanced classes in failing. <laughs> uh, you have to graduate from the first and second grade classes in failure first, but uh, as you get older, you, get, you, you, have, you can mess up even bigger sometimes. Not that you should, but the Lord will be faithful to help you. Uh, <laughs> chapter 14, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Do you know that Paul tells Timothy with regard to servant leadership gifts, if a man desires to be an overseer, it's a great and fine work he desires to do? Nobody wanted to be an effective evangelist out of their flesh because it'll cost you... <laughs> No one wants to be a shepherd or teacher, and I don't want you to know how carnal and ungodly I am, but almost every morning I have to spend time with God to work up the want to be the pastor again, because <laughs> I don't wake up wanting to be the pastor. I wake up wanting to see my, I wish these appointments on my schedule weren't here for the rest of the day. <laughs> you got, I got to get together with that one again. Oh, no. <laughs> Like who in their right mind would want to lay down their life in the love and service of one another in the body of Christ? And then people have major doubts about whether what they're trying to do is something honorable or not. Paul is assuring us it's honorable that you'd want to be an overseer. You'd have to be an idiot, in fact. <laughs> you, like you got a death wish because you're going to become an overseer as he gradually kills you. <laughs> And people always like, is he trying to kill me? Yes, that's what he's after. <laughs> you know, man, I've been going through a lot of tough times now. I go, have you ever factored in that like God's actually trying to kill you? <laughs> All right. So uh, let's see. Moving on, uh, verse 4 of that chapter. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church, builds the church up. Okidomao means oikos, uh, we get oikonomics from that, economics. And domao, we get domestic, he is the, builds, manages the household, builds up the household, makes the household of God stronger when you prophesy. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but I, I, even more that you would prophesy. Do you think God, Paul is saying, I'm going to write in this letter that God's going to use for all eternity that I wish you would prophesy and then he's going to stop all that by 70 AD. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, and greater is the one who prophesies, the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up, edified. Verse 39, at the end of the chapter, Therefore, my brother, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Five different ways and times he, Paul tells you that you're supposed to be growing in spiritual gifts and seeking to pursue to do so. So if you have any doubts as to whether that should be a goal, yes, you're going to have to lay before God that my motives might not be the best and help me to seek to abound for the edification of the church. And God will help you. Third area of goals is in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we have a GCF foundational article, if you haven't read it, on the Lord's Day. But most Christians today underestimate the Lord's Day. Reason, one reason I wanted to make an audio of this and make it on a podcast 
is because I knew like the people who need to hear that won't be there on a Tuesday night when it's 10 below zero. Well, I, no, it's above zero right now. <laughs> it was 10 below zero this morning when we woke up at uh, eight or nine. Who's quibbling? Um, I like it cold, but anyway. Um, let's start our Brothers Polar Bear Club. No, uh, <laughs> let's all go swimming then tonight afterwards. Uh, it's probably down to about five right now, I guess. You're not going? <laughs> I mean, the water's really good. It's, it's crushed this time of year. A little crunchy, too, sometimes. But uh, you have to watch out for that initial dive that you don't hurt yourself. But uh, all right, anyway, moving on. Uh, silliness. Celebrating the Lord's Day. Do you have goals about that? Now, if you attend every time, what about like being more faithful on Saturday night to, or to, to get ready? Everything from getting the laundry done and laying out the clothes to setting your alarm to uh, making sure you're in the spirit. I gave up socializing on Saturday nights a long, many years ago. And it's a great evening for my wife and I. Saturday nights is about like reading the word or sometimes watching football. But, uh, <laughs> but it's not about like staying out late or, you know, I'm usually in bed by like 8 o'clock and up by 3 or 4 in the morning or something like that. Because it's, we're, we're preparing for the Lord's Day. You know, there's a few Christians in our church that have a prayer meeting at 8.30 in the basement. I'm so hoping that someday they'll have to move that prayer meeting up to my living room because there's too many people for that little room in the basement. I've always told them, if you get more than you can fit in there, move, you, you know, you all have keys, use our living room. I'm hoping to start getting the messages done on Friday so I can attend that. What, like, how important is the Lord's Day for you? How often do you miss? How often do you come and you're not really in the right attitude or demeanor or, or prepared? How often do you have trouble getting up because you're, he, you just don't love him that much? Things like that are always about passion and motivation. Secondly, leadership development, soul care, spiritual authority, walking in the light. Do we have goals about walking in the light? 1 John 1, he says, I write these things so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, if we walk in the light, as He's in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we you know, have goals about the reality of our fellowship? You know, after, you know, a few years in a fellowship, you start to know each other real good and real well. Great, great grammar. Uh, <laughs> real good, real good-like, and uh, golly. And uh, <laughs> that's an old word that people used to say. <laughs> uh, it was sort of corny word. Um, you know, but eventually, you know, like we all enjoy going bowling and riding our bikes and, you know, getting together to have pizza or watch a movie. But are we really sharing the life of Christ within us? Are we really working on mission together? Are we really laying our life down in the service of those outside and so forth? Is it really all about Jesus and the goals he has for this church? Guess what? This is not your church. It's not my church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and we don't own it. 
Third area, community, koinonia, fellowship, friendship, mutual service, edification. I already talked about it. Three ministries of all Christians. Hopefully you have that idea memorized and you think about it in terms of your goals for the church and for individually every year. But those three areas are your ministry to God. That includes things like worship, prayer, fasting, uh, Bible study, What your ministry to God. Do you have goals in terms of your love and ministry and service to God? You know, in Genesis 6, it talks about how God looked down on the earth and the, uh, the hearts and actions of man were violent all the time and God was actually grieved that he had made man. Remember, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Is it one of your heart's goals that God would look down and see Abigail Burks and be glad that he made man? That should be, that's what we're called to. We're called to be ministers to God, first and foremost. Secondly, do we, are you growing in more important ministries in the body of Christ? You, first the natural, then the spiritual. You start with sweeping the parking lot, taking out the trash. I'm actually thankful for the fact that I've never actually been in a church in my 43 years of being a Christian that my first job in the church wasn't taking out the trash. Even when we bought this building and started this church, my sons were too young to come down here late at night, so I used to come down every and take out the trash. Thank, thank God for Sam Awante but, <laughs> and other guys who do these things. But like you, never, like you should never be past taking out the trash. Mowing the lawn for Christ. Changing diapers. <laughs> Okay, now the pastor's getting out of that. <laughs> Clean, doing the dishes. Cleaning the bathrooms. Our ministry to, to the body of Christ. And our ministry to the lost. Are you growing in your social skills and your knowledge of Scripture and your memorized Scriptures and all the things that would be necessary to become more fruitful in your ministry to the lost? And are you partnering with your other friends in the, in, in the single households or the families or all the different places we have outreaches? Are, are you working together to be more fruitful? To, to, you know, even if your job is to make people feel they have more friends and that they're more loved and they're more welcome. How hard are you working on hospitality and so forth? Do you have people over? Do you make people feel like they belong? Have goals for that sort of thing. Man, we're in trouble. This might have to become a two-part series. Hopefully not. No, flip over. <laughs> uh, stewardship of God's gifts in this life. So I'm not going to be able to develop this, but the first one I've listed is education, vocation, finances, property management, and investments. I would encourage you to, to, to have goals in that life. Stewardship of, of, of your calling of your education, of your finances, is part of walking with God. You know, we always have a certain percentage of people who cheat on their tithes. And we have people who don't think they cheat on their tithes, but they're just so unorganized that they're cheating on their tithes and they don't even know they're cheating on their tithes. Are you that unorganized? <laughs> Do you, like, pay bills late? I hope you never pay a bill late. That is an ungodly thing to do. 
Are you not progressing in your vocational calling and, and being more employable and at, at, at things that, that pay better? That's not an unspiritual thing as long as you're doing it for the glory of Christ. And what you're called to do, are you getting better at it? Are you studying? If you're called to the ministry, you've got to study. There's probably no vocational calling that you shouldn't be studying about. You know, it's amazing how many Christian parents don't read books about marriage. It's like, that would be really stupid to be married and not read Christian books about marriage. That would be idiot. That's ridiculous. There's lots of great resources from Tim Keller's book on marriage, etc. We have a whole list of books that we could recommend to you on marriage. If you're going to court someone of the opposite sex and think about getting married, we start reading books on marriage. <laughs> Bring less baggage into the dating relationship. Second area I have listed is health, diet, exercise, nutrition, and sleep. You know, when you're a young man, the, the proverb says, the glory of a young man is his strength, but the glory of old men is their gray hair, which is a sign of their wisdom. One of the things you'll gradually see happen is, you're, is God sanctifies you. When you're a young guy, you like being buff and having muscles and pecs and all that. Gradually, what God should be giving you is a desire to have a good level of zeal, discipline, energy, productivity every day in this life, and to live longer in your service of God. Do you know there's a lot of people die 10, 20, 30 years younger than they should because they eat the wrong diet or whatever? Health, diet, exercise, nutrition, sleep. I used to cheat my sleep a lot when I was a young guy. That was, that's not that great. You now, I do believe you should be disciplined enough that if you have to stay up, you know, till three or four in the morning and have a test at eight o'clock the next morning, once in a while you should be able to, you know, work forty-eight hours without sleeping or something. If you can't do that at all, that's in your past sixteen or eighteen years old. That's probably foolish. But uh, but if you're doing that four times a week in your past sixteen or eighteen years old, that's also foolish. You know, because you want to, like, live in life, like Paul was saying when we talked in 1 Corinthians 9 about buffeting his body, you want to be master of your body's appetites. I don't want, because I'm exhausted and sleepy, to, keep, to not be able to do a good job when I'm ministering to someone that I have to minister to, despite the fact that it's 1130 at night and I wish I was in bed two hours ago. I still want to be able to be keenly focused and, and hear the Holy Spirit and know the Scriptures and, hear, and give them what they need. And I don't want, I'm going to conduct my emotions and my control of my, of my body in such a way that they don't suspect that I'm battling on the inside with, I wish I was home in bed now <laughs> instead of ministering to this person at 12 at night. If you're going to do campus ministry, no one gets saved before 11 p.m. <laughs> That's true, actually. <laughs> College students always come to Christ late at night. <laughs> Well, Gene, you're about you're unusually above normal, though. <laughs> you're awesome. I got saved in the middle of the night. I don't even know if I am saved. No, I'm just kidding. All right, number three: talents, callings, giftedness. 
not simply, now we talked about three categories of biblical gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, the seven ministry gifts of leadership, and the seven gifts of motivation or temperament that's talked about in Romans 12. But everything, your life is a gift, your breath is a gift, the fact that you came to Christ, that you're a part of this church, whether you have callings toward music or mathematics or engineering or, you know, whatever, you have gifts from God. Are they growing and are you developing them? And are you thinking through which are the ones that could bear the most impact for serving the Lord in the, in the body of Christ? You know, uh, since we got Sam Chen Poon right here, I've always admired Sam from the day I met him. And one of the things I admired about him is in our first few weeks of getting to know each other, I found out he played the guitar, which wasn't that spectacular, although less people used to be in a fellowship like 50% of the people could play the guitar for worship. Now it's like one out of 10 or 15. I wish that it was more common like it used to be. But then I found out he could play the drums. But none of that would have impressed me except for I found out, like, why did you learn to play the drums? How did you learn to play? Who taught you? He goes, well, I was in this fellowship that needed a drummer. So I decided to learn how to play the drums because the fellowship needed a drummer. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's right. That's the way. To, like, are you learning to play the guitar so the brothers that you live with can have a guitar player for the worship? Or do you have to play, like, YouTube videos or something for worship because no one can play? That's ridiculous. Play. It's really, you can learn the guitar in three weeks. It, I mean, it's really not that hard. I've never started a church that I didn't play the guitar for the first part of the church, but then I would fire myself as soon as people who could play the guitar better. This church, I actually got fired <laughs> from my sons. They were like, you, you sting. <laughs> we'll take over the worship now. <laughs> I was like, thank God. <laughs> But, you know, like, can you, you could learn to bang out a few chords on the guitar or the piano well enough to play worship for a household gathering. Anybody could. Well, not anybody, but most people could. Talents, callings, giftedness, are you developing them for the love of Christ? Are you looking at practical needs, you know, cooking? I'm sure many single brothers' households wish that they had more on vest type people in the, in, the, in the household that could really cook. One certain guy, yeah, thank God for Sam Chen Poon again. I've heard, heard, I actually haven't had much of your food, but I've heard it's quite good. Uh, you know, then there's uh, other guys who can't even, you know, make uh, sloppy joes or grilled cheese or something. I actually, you know, we, my, Catherine and I always have different guys move in with us that we can disciple who weren't always brought up in the best households and stuff. And we actually had a guy move in with us once that couldn't make toast or scrambled eggs when he first, I'm like, what? Like, how can you be in first grade and not be able to make scrambled eggs and toast? Like, you're kidding me. Uh, that happens these days. Develop yourself. Find, you know, I, when I was in grad school, the second year I turned down the assistantship because I realized I had a calling to do a lot of things and I didn't know about architecture, building and remodeling and, and electrical and plumbing and framing in houses and drywall. So I didn't take my assistantship as a teaching so that I could take a job learning to do all that while I was paying my way through grad school because I knew that God would want me to know all that for the future. Not just to save a few bucks at my own house, but 
you know, when, you know, when you start churches, you end up having to improve buildings. And believe me, when we go to underdeveloped countries, and you know, we're going to have to build church buildings in places like Hyderabad and Nairobi and, and so forth. Can, you know, can we do the can lights or not? <laughs> you know, like you should develop a diversity of talents and gifts. There's so many people who grow up not being able to do much of anything anymore. That if your parents let that happen to you, they, they weren't very loving. You should grow up knowing how to cook, do dishes, mow lawns, ed sidewalks, paint, drywall, do it. You know, my girls knew how to do electrical and plumbing when they were growing up. Although my boys had to stay up all night doing it when they were in fourth grade and stuff. You know, sometimes I would, it would and I only did that like on Christmas break and stuff. Sometimes I was tough on them because life is tough. You're going to sometimes have to work for 48 hours without taking a break because the, the emergency of the situation requires it. Fourthly, relationships. Have goals in your relationships to your church, to your family, to your friendships. Now, that's a little tricky. I don't want to say a lot about that. But Jesus usually puts spiritual relationships before natural relationships. His own mother and brothers came looking for him. And he said, who are my mothers and brothers? And he pointed to his disciples and said, those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, occasionally, you have a situation like I've had with Jason and Carla and John and Emily and, of course, Catherine for many, where your spiritual family is your natural family. But most people don't have that once you're 16 or 18 or 20 years old. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But you've got to put the relationships God wants you to have in the body of Christ first. That's scriptural. And there is a time, you know, ages 14 to 21, you should be gradually managing your own finances and your own jobs and in your own car. And, and you know, that's called adulting is the term they use nowadays. <laughs> are you adulting well? I hope you are completely adulted and <laughs> not adulterated <laughs> if you're past 18 or so. Like, do you really, like at 18, does someone still have to tell you when to get up and make sure you get to work on time and how to take care of your car? And I hope to God that's not happening. Have goals about those kinds of things. And part of growing up is you leave your own parental family because eventually you want to develop the characteristics that you could succeed in doing your own family. That's, in fact, what single households really good for. They help you become ready to have your own family. I mean, if you can't make toast and scrambled eggs, you really need to live with some single brothers or sisters and learn how to cook, learn how to iron, learn how to do stuff. Don't let mommy do that for you. We, you know, we started all of our kids doing their own laundry in third grade. That was our family policy. After third grade, mommy doesn't do your laundry anymore. You do. All right. Ah, do I want to go for it? It's uh, getting late already. Practical guidelines for achieving goals. Let's try to get through this. Um, at the bottom, I guess I'm not going to get into these Bible in a Year programs. Let's see if I can get through these seven. I'm not going to be able to develop them as well as I would like. First of all, choose the right goals. 
Biblical, biblical goals is important. It is a biblical goal to read the whole Bible. We believe that the sum of thy word is true, Psalm 119, 160. We believe 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God-breathed. So if you believe that, you would study all scripture on some kind of regular basis. If you haven't read the whole Bible, you don't actually believe the Christian faith. You can say you prayed at an altar call, you could have got baptized, you could have got real wet, but if, you're, if you don't have something inside you that wants to know God's word, you wouldn't be in love with a girl and you wouldn't want to read their text messages. Yeah, my girlfriend calls every evening, but I don't take the call. <laughs> you know, I've never heard any dating couples say that. <laughs> like, when she calls, I always just, you know, like, hit the don't, do not disturb button and keep doing my math homework. It's amazing how you'll get these very busy people, and then they start courting, and then all of a sudden they got all this time to talk. <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. You have, you have the time for what you think is important. Choose the right goals, and one biblical goal should be that on some sort of regular time schedule, you're going to read the whole Bible, whether it's, you know, I uh, went through a period from 1998 to 2004 where I would read half the Old Testament each year and the New Testament once a year. Now, when I, in 1974 and 75 and 76, I would read the New Testament like 10 times a year and the Old Testament once or twice a year because I was in college <laughs> and I didn't have like real jobs. I had like McDonald's and other part-time jobs, but uh, you know, I didn't have like a real job. I cleaned apartments and stuff like that. I, had, I always had little jobs, but your full-time job is to be a student, and first and foremost, I was a student of God's Word, even though they didn't have many classes on that at Bowling Green State University. You don't need a class to be a student. You're a student of whatever you want to study. Number one, choose the right goals, and it should be part of your goals to study the whole Bible thoroughly, over and over again as a Christian. If that's not a part of your Christian goals, you're not seeing the Christian life correctly. Number two, make your goals challenging but not realistic. What I mean by that is you should always have goals that you have a little bit of doubt whether you could hit it, but not like totally ridiculously impossible. You know, like if I have a goal to become 30 years old again and to grow a full head of hair, that's not going to work out very well. <laughs> you know, I, that goal passed me by <laughs> a long time ago when, before all of you were born. But you, you have to have goals that are a little challenging, that you basically, I, you know, like even when I, was, I used to play a lot of sports and we had a very good church league team and I used to play full court basketball like three and four times a week and I used to wonder if God was uh, worried about my priorities because we loved to run full court basketball and, and our all the guys in our church, like 10 or 15 of us, would do it like three or four times every week. And we had a really good team. And, and we would just run the guys off the other the court and so forth. Um, but, um, you know, you you got to set a goal that you can hit. So, you know, I set a goal to win this little church league <laughs> and not to be in the NBA because I was never good enough that I was going to play like for a college team or something, but we could win the little church league. Make your goals like in reality, they can be somewhat achieved, like somewhat like I'd, 
I always did the best when I thought the other team's a little better than us. And, but if we played our really best game and stayed focused and played really intense and really knocked ourselves out, we might be able to stay with these guys. Try to get in that attitude toward goals is what I'm saying. Like, I, if I set these goals, it's going to take, I'm going to have to grow up a lot and focus a lot more and stay more diligent, and I'm going to have to sustain it over a period of time, but it's doable by the grace of God. Don't set a goal that's not a little bit stretching your imagination, whether you can do it or not. But then don't set it so high, again, like, you know, I didn't. I, I always set the goal every year in the in the in the church league basketball. They had a, an award for the most Christ-like uh, attitude of the church. We won that goal, that trophy every year. Unfortunately, we came in second in the league every year. Now the the team that won was different each year. We never won. We always lost in the last two championship games of the tournament or something. But we were a pretty good team. And we always got the trophy for having the most Christ-like attitude. And that was our goal. I was like, well, I don't know if we can win the league or not, but we, we definitely should represent Christ well and win that trophy. So set goals that, you, that are achievable and measurable. Thirdly, properly estimate the cost of achieving. Do I have this desire or zeal? Can I sustain it? It's the tendency of our fallen nature to underestimate the cost to achieve. Success is related to your properly estimating or overestimating what it's going to take to get there. Now, here's what the flesh wants to do. I, I wish people could see the video on, on this. So I'm, I'm, uh, for those listening on audio, I'm make, spreading my hands uh, up and down like two feet apart from each other or something. And if you can imagine that being a scale of 1 to 10... What people want to do is assume that it would take a three or four effort to get to a seven. But what you need to do is assume it would take an 11 or 12 effort to get to an eight or nine. And you need to obsess about it a little bit. You know, almost every diet book says that don't weigh yourself every day because you'll get discouraged. I say weigh yourself six times a day so you know like how the glass of water is affecting you, how you weigh in the morning versus how you weigh at night and so forth, and obsess about it because you're going to hit the goal. Not, not measuring it very often is for people who are afraid they're not going to hit it. Fourthly, proper consideration of other biblical responsibilities, other goals, priorities. When I was in college, I had a goal that I would not do my secular homework because I went to Bowling Green State University. I didn't go to a Christian college until I'd read the Bible each day at least three hours. But it was always part of my goal that the last week of classes and the week of finals, that goal went out the window because <laughs> I would be writing my papers and turning them in and so forth. But for 10 weeks, I'd read the Bible three hours a day. Then I'd do my homework. Finals week, forget it. I didn't read the Bible at all or for two weeks. You know? And uh, because, you know, it, you have to kind of estimate what the cost is going to be in terms of other goals and responsibilities. You know, 
and that may change your goals. I've always had the goal to have a 160-gallon, six-foot-long fish tank that was beautifully decorated and had great tropical fish, maybe even saltwater fish and so forth. But since I can't get my wife to buy into that goal because she wouldn't want me to spend that kind of money, I still don't have it, but I have, I've had that goal since I was a kid. One of these days, maybe you'll walk into my house and I'll have a six-foot tank in my house with 160 gallons and beautiful fish. Hopefully. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll have that in heaven, but <laughs> I'm hoping for a bigger one there. <laughs> Hopefully, of course, by then that's because I'll be swimming with the fishes. No. It's uh, <laughs> an old thing. Um, fifth, proper consideration of how your goals are going to affect your other goals is the point. And you've got to subordinate some goals to other goals. It might not be wise to set a goal to get all A's if you haven't gotten all A's in the past. Just becoming a better student and better study habits and so forth might be the better goal. And you might raise your goals about your achievement in school gradually. Fifthly, measurable success. Do you, do you have ways of measuring whether you have attained that? My goal is to read a lot. That's too big. You know, I used to have a nice shelf that I used to keep. It's all gone now, but I used to keep all the books I read in 1986, for instance, in order. And each one said completed such and such a day because my goal was to read, in addition to scripture reading, to read one nonfiction book of theology or church history per week. And at the end of the year, I had a shelf of 52 books that were the order in which I read the books. And I still have a lot of old books where I can pull the book off the shelf and it'll say, oh, completed, you know, September 27th of 1984. And I can go, oh, yeah, 84. That was when I was still living in Bowling Green and thinking about moving to Dayton to start a church. And I can still at least kind of have a little bit of memory about when I completed That's why I, like, I stamp in every book when I completed it. Unfortunately, too many of those books get lent out and don't come back, so most of them are missing, but still have a few ones. Are your goals measurable? In every, all these areas that we're talking about earlier, scripture reading, education, vocation, health, diet, talents, like I'm going to eat a little better is not a goal. You know, Going to cut out the cherries on top of my hot fudge sundaes. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not like a goal. Uh, you know, and you can't have it be vague. You know, like I'm going to eat a little better. What the heck does that mean? Define it. Measure it. Sixthly, periodic evaluation and reevaluation of goals. Now, the Bible starts in Genesis 1 talking about God giving the sun and the moon to, to divide days, weeks, months, and years. Those are biblical units of time that God gave, and you should use those. Every day you should reevaluate your goals a little bit. That's what your evening prayers and time with the Lord's about. Like, did I have a productive day? Did I chip away at some of these goals? 
You know, you don't, you, if you, you know, cutting down a tree with an axe that's a big fat tree, you have to chip away for a long time. But did I chip away more today? And is that tree closer to falling down than it was last week or yesterday? Make sure your goals can be reevaluated in terms of days, weeks, months, and years. And have regular scheduled times to reevaluate them. Like on Saturday nights, I look at the whole week. And what did we get done? I, I always spend part of my day off Monday afternoon setting up my schedule for the coming week. So, evaluate your goals in biblical units of time. I'll give you an example. When I, I was a flunky, druggie, and all that in high school, so I had like a 2.5. I was not in the top 50% of my high school class, so I was only accepted to a state university. Couldn't have got in a private one. And I only went to a state university on a probationary program. So my first goal was to get better grades so I didn't flunk out. But... During the first quarter there, I became a Christian, So I and I started reading books like The Disciplined Life by Richard Shelley Taylor back there, and I began to set goals like I'll never get a C again, and I achieved that. But at first, I was getting more Bs than As, because I didn't have good study habits, note-taking skills, things like that. So I kept reading articles and, and books about study habits and taking notes and how to do better in school and things like that. Uh, these days, it's a piece of cake to do that because you can just Google it and read articles every day. Like, how do you take notes better? You can read a bunch of articles. Uh, how do you study for tests? How do you memorize? There's a lot, you know, I would encourage you to read articles about whatever, if you're trying to get better at diet, nutrition, and exercise, read some art. My dad taught me that. Like, even once you're living the kind of lifestyle that you should in terms of your nutrition and all those things, read an article once a week or something about it to remind you you know, like what ice cream does to your arteries or whatever. <laughs> you know, you, need, you might need a re, redose of th good thinking. Okay, so once I got straight B's, then I set a goal to get some A's mixed in. And then I set a goal to get half A's. And then I raised it to a goal to get three A's for every B. And by my last four years of uh, four quarters of college, I set a goal to get all A's and no more B's. Unfortunately, I got 14 A's and two B's in my last 16 classes. So I didn't chain the goal, but I kept moving toward it throughout the four years. So don't, so don't like set a goal. Like if you've eaten American terrible lifestyle and so forth, and you're as big as me, obese as me or whatever, don't, uh, you know, don't set a goal to lose 100 pounds. I, I'd die if I lost that much. But, uh, you know, like, don't, like, set goals that are challenging but attainable, but then reevaluate the goals. You know, like, if your goal is to get your driver's license and so forth and become a safe driver, eventually that's going to be too easy. So you have to reevaluate goals and kind of raise the bar on yourself every now and again. What you considered hard when you were one age is not necessarily hard when you get to another age. All right, and seventhly, lastly, factor into your goals that there will be partial failures and temporary disruptions. So learn how to set goals and, and evaluate goals and reevaluate them in a bend-but-don't-break manner. 
What most people do is their goals get interrupted and the goals go out the window completely. You want to have goals that you can actually kind of reevaluate and you can kind of say, man, I didn't get my scripture reading done for two or three weeks. Have you factored in a makeup time? One of the reasons my Bible study programs are always based on, on being faithful five days a week so that the sixth and seventh day can be my makeup days. And I can catch up. And I have different periods of my life that are always my makeup times. For instance, I used to have to travel for business a lot. So I would always say, during that trip, I'm going to read a lot. And I would start reading while I was in the lobby waiting for the plane to board. And I would read on the plane. And I would read at the hotel that night. And I would read the whole time I was on this business trip. And I would catch up like two weeks on my reading during the three or four days I was gone because I had less interruptions. And I just decided to focus all the time while I was gone on catching up on my reading. You have to like build that into your goals. When's going to be your catch-up times? And your makeup times. How are you going to get back on track when you get knocked off track? Because you are going to get knocked off track. Learn how to stay the course and above all, avoid a pattern in your life of quitting. A lot of people who knew me in the 70s and 80s knew I was obsessed about my thing of finishing every book I read. Nowadays, I have 10 books going at a time and 12, and I hardly ever finish a book because most books are better off to be articles halfway through them. You've, read, you've gotten the book, you know. But I used to be very obsessed about reading the whole book because I had been a quitter before I was a Christian. And if there's one thing my older brother and other people that in my life used to challenge me about is you've got giftedness and talent, but you never achieve because you're too, you're, you're quit too easily. So I became obsessed after I became a Christian about not quitting. This church wouldn't be here if God hadn't put that in me. <laughs> Believe me, there were lots of opportunities to quit for the first nine years. So most of you are sitting here today because God helped me learn not to be a quitter. Avoid a pattern of quitting at all costs. Don't be a quitter. Now, that's different between when you get into something, you go, oh, my gosh, that was a stupid mistake to ever start taking, you know, lessons on how to make Egyptian money, mummies or something, <laughs> something ridiculous for your time or something. But, you know, that's, it's one thing to occasionally quit with some advice and counsel of your godly friends because that wasn't a good direction to go in the first place. But don't have a pattern of quitting a lot, of not getting homework done, of not getting assignments done. If you have a pattern of that, you're ruining, you're destroying yourself. That's a terrible pattern to have. All right, lastly, we're going to talk about all these Bible in a Year programs, but we are, we did get started a little late, and I wanted to keep this under 90 minutes. We got about 10 minutes before we're at 90 minutes. Um, if you look at point B under Roman numeral 3, uh, there's Bible in a Year programs, and I listed the one that John Weiss likes the most and Andy Gerhardt likes the most. However, there's plenty of these programs online. And you can buy actually a Bible that's a Bible in a Year Bible. You can just go to, you know, go online and buy it at Amazon or wherever they sell Christian book distributors or any of those websites, or you can go to some Christian bookstore, buy a Bible in a Year Bible, and follow it. And I put the websites that you would need. You can always email uh, Stephen. His email is at the bottom of the page. I usually put Deanna's on there. I guess I didn't on this one. But you can email one of those two, and they'll email you this. 
outline, and the websites will turn into to links, so all you have to do is click on them. And you can follow. Uh, John likes this machine reading plan. Andy likes the Navigator's Discipleship Journal reading plan. Um, point C there, I, I like a plan sometimes. I've done this some years, uh, and I see my spacing got off on point five there. But um, I divide the, the Bible into five sections, and I wish I had more time because I don't really want to go into all this, but I have three plans based on that, and they're all based on being faithful five days a week, and I'm glad to teach you about that in private if you want to do that. I like doing that some years because if I'm reading five chapters a day or six, two in the New Testament and four in the Old Testament, or if I'm reading just one in the New Testament and two in the Old Testament, but I'm reading through the different sections, it constantly reminds me of how much the sections are actually tied in together. So, But you should also do plans where you just read whole books and see how much a whole book is one theme as well. So... Um, but I, I love to do make sort of my own cross-reference Bible while I'm reading the Bible. And, uh, you know, like you're reading in Galatians, oh, Paul took that verse from somewhere in Jeremiah or whatever. And I like to make my own cross-reference Bible when I'm reading. And uh, which some, my wife would tell, tell you, Greg wastes too much time doing stuff like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, set some Bible goals. Set, set goals in these areas. And, uh, you know, there's the, the old saying, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it. Don't forget that the Greek word hamartia, which means sin, is not all about whether you drink Pepsi or not, or whatever your favorite sin is, but it's about missing the mark. You have an upward call of God in Christ Jesus in your life. And it's you, what God's calling you to be is much higher than you've ever imagined. And make sure you begin to get before the Lord in his presence and ask God who he's called you to be. And believe me, it'll take every ounce of dedication, commitment, sacrifice, and everything to become what God intends for you to be. And if you don't have an inspired view of reality from Jesus Christ, you couldn't possibly believe what he's called you to be. Amen.